But we are going to spend some time today looking at this issue of humility and pride. And so turn with me, if you have your Bible, to Proverbs. We're going to start in Proverbs 3. As we've been going through these series where we get these couplets, uh, last week was honesty and lying, today humility and pride. It's kind of like a sword drill. We kind of move through a couple of verses simultaneously uh, that have some themes. So we'll go through three different themes and then focus a little bit on the so-called Ask Kirby questions. And the first is that we can see that when we look at the scriptures, God certainly loves humility and hates pride. And so let's look at some of the verses I put up there. Proverbs 3, uh, first of all, verse 34, and you can see, uh, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. And then we can see in chapter 6, Verses 16 and 17, a passage we looked at last week, but it's worth mentioning again. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, which gets us back to the issue of pride. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. And again, the list continues on from there. Then we have in verses 25 in chapter 15, another section about humility and pride. And in this particular section, we read, um, The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. And then finally, one other one we'll look at would be 16, verse 5, which says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord, but um, be secured, assured he will not go unpunished. And then in verse 12, uh, 4 of chapter 21, we look at one more passage. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. And so a number of verses just remind us of the fact that certainly we have seen the difference between pride and humility. And if you think about this, I've talked about this before when we've looked at passages in the New Testament. We don't really have a culture today that values humility. Oh, yeah, we like to have some people having a false brag or something of that nature. But the bottom line is, is that oftentimes we tell people, if you want to be successful in business, you need to go out there and assert yourself. If you want to be successful in uh, the area of acting or uh, celebrity culture, you have to really put yourself first. So in many ways, our culture has not valued humility. But if you think the problem is bad in the 21st century, let's go back to the first century, because I was looking at some of the cultural aspects of that. But in the ancient Near East, especially in the Jewish culture, and you see this surfacing many times in the gospel, everything was based on social status. For example, who you could marry, who you could do business with, where you would sit in a synagogue, where you would sit in a meal, and whether you were even invited to that meal in the first place. Remember, Jesus, at one point, we're going to come back to this a little bit later, saying, you know, don't put yourself in a seat of honor, because later on you might be asked to go to the foot of the table, you know. And so you can see that Jesus was speaking to that issue as well. And so in the culture that Jesus was speaking into, but even so, the culture that Solomon was speaking into, there were people spending a lot of time and a lot of energy trying to make strategic moves in order to improve their standing in the community. Well, as we've said before, Jesus kind of ended what we call the honor game and chose instead humility. 
And today we take for granted that humility is a positive value. But it was not considered a positive value either in Rome or in the Jewish culture. And think about this. I've put this from one of the commentaries. He chose despised sinners and ordinary fishermen and his disciples. He treated foreigners and the poor and outcasts with respect. He ate with sinners. Uh, he let lepers touch him. Um, of course, if you've ever watched, um, of course, The Chosen, there's a lot of attempt to try to illustrate that as well. Let women sit at his feet. Of course, we've heard Pastor Graham talking about all the women that had a prominent place in the early church. And, of course, becoming a human being, stepping out of heaven into time, the incarnation, what's known as the kenosis passage there in Philippians 2, uh, being willing to, first of all, humble himself to be a human being, then to actually live and die uh, a shameful death. Certainly very good illustrations of humility. And so what you have in the Proverbs here is once again Solomon's talking about two different worldviews. Two different perspectives, two different value systems, one in which the way of the world, which is pride, and then the way of the Lord, which is humility. And the world kind of tells us that, you know, we really need to do what we can to get ahead. But Jesus says that to serve um, those who really can't do anything in return. You know, if you love people that love you, what good is that? But if you love your enemies or you serve those who cannot repay you, that is a perfect idea. The world tells us to put ourselves first. What does Jesus say? No, those who will be first of all will be last of all. And those who will be last will be what? First of all. And so again, the world tells us to climb the corporate ladder, get the corner office. What does Jesus say? You need to kneel down and wash people's feet. So again, just some great illustrations that we have, not only in the Proverbs, but of course in the teaching of Jesus. Now, a couple of others you have, of course, Proverbs 3 and Proverbs 6. They're part of longer passages that also deal with all sorts of character aspects, which we've already looked at in the past. But each of these, interestingly enough, is contrasted with a picture Jesus has in the Beatitudes. I've begun to realize that some of the things that are in the Proverbs, when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, it's almost like he's hearkening back to what probably was in the minds of most of the Jewish people who had memorized these Proverbs, because he talks about blessed are the meek, the merciful, the poor. And again, even here, we have a stronger statement in Proverbs 16 that pride is what? An abomination. Pride is a sin. You know, sometimes when people confess their sins, um, pride usually isn't on the list. But again, you see that maybe it should be in that particular regard. Real quickly then, let's, if we can, also talk about the fact that when we look at this, there's a real interesting parallel, not only from the Proverbs, but as I've seen some of these commentaries, a connection to the book of James. And for example, many people have referred to James as wisdom literature in the New Testament. Uh, certainly, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are wisdom literature in the Old Testament. But here, again, we see that James actually quotes Proverbs 3.34 and explains why humility is important. Because humility is submitting yourself to God. And humility allows you to have authority and wisdom. And so that's what we should be seeking. The proud think they know better than God. And, of course, the example we can use and the one that James gets into is Adam and Eve. The first sin was a lack of trust in God's word. No longer trusting God, but instead trusting yourself. They chose to take their wisdom 
and assert that over God's wisdom and trusting in His wisdom. So we have, I think, some really strong statements being made, even in the New Testament, reflecting and reinforcing some of the ideas in Proverbs. Finally, in a culture that glorifies self-promotion, and we certainly see that, if not just go out on social media right now and look at how many of these celebrities are promoting themselves, humility sounds like having a negative view. But that's not what humility is. As a matter of fact, we have some very good New Testament principles that talk about the fact that being humble means having a realistic view of who you are. Humility is not just putting yourself down, uh, but it's also not putting yourself above other individuals, but having a right relationship with you and with God. And so for just a minute, just before we get into our second point, I thought I might just make a distinction here. What does humility with God look like? Okay, we got a couple of examples here. First of all, it's recognizing, as some people said, to recognize that God is God and you are not. Hate to break that to you, but that is the case. Uh, God who created the whole universe knows better what we do and has the right to tell us how to live and how to disciple us and what we should obey. And ultimately, humility means drawing closer to God. The closer we get to God, the more we see his glory, but the more humble we are. And I put down Isaiah 6. You know, you think about this. Isaiah is certainly struggling with the loss of a leader that had been there for a long time. Be like what happened back in the 1940s when Franklin Delano Roosevelt died. I mean, he'd always been the president. He'd been a president longer than any time we'd ever had a person in office, and then he died. In Israel, same kind of thing. Here you'd have this leader that they'd always followed, and now he died. And now God opens up this vision, and in the midst of this vision, all of a sudden he is completely broken. Can you imagine seeing God, seeing the angels and everything, and just falling flat on your face? Because you realize humility is realizing God is God. And I am certainly not. And so that's what humility before God means. But let's look at the other aspect of that. What does humility mean with other individuals? And first of all, I think it means putting other people's needs ahead of our own. It's serving other people, even people that we might categorize as less than appropriate or individuals, as we mentioned a minute ago, that could not help you in return. Humility is loving God and loving others, thinking of others' needs first. Again, Pastor Graham gave us the great illustration. The great commandment is what? Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Next, loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's serving others, not demanding they serve us. It's building up others, not tearing them down so we look better. It's thinking about what we can give instead of what we can get and how we can help others before helping ourselves. So again, great lessons here in terms of humility, and I think a good illustration of why this is a very significant passage. But let's look at a couple of other verses here as well, because we also see that uh, there is a concern about humility, and that is, if you don't have humility and you have pride, pride can lead towards destruction. We're going to look at some very famous passages in that regard. First of all, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Then we skip over to uh, chapter 11, 
And in chapter 11, verse 2, we have a statement that says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. And so we see the idea that uh, we can certainly focus on humility. Then chapter 16, verses 18 and 19, probably the most famous passage here, Pride goes before destruction. Sometimes you will have a translation, pride goes before the fall. And a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Uh, Verses uh, 18 and 19 in chapter 16. Then we'll skip over very quickly to chapter 21, verse 24. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. And then verse 29. By the way, I had a couple others in the handout, in case you want to look those up afterwards, but I just picked out a few that I thought most appropriate. And one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. So we have a couple of examples here about what, again, Pride, And first of all, we see that God hates pride and loves humility and always gives us some practical ideas of what humility might look like. But again, probably the famous verse here that we've heard before, pride leads to destruction, but humility leads to wisdom. You've been around prideful people. You can't tell them anything. And uh, we've seen that before. We've had some presidents like that, too. Uh, and we've had uh, probably people that you've worked with that are bosses that are like that. But an individual that say, look, I don't know everything. I'm humble. Maybe I can learn something from you, even if I disagree. Obviously, there's where wisdom comes from. So it's interesting that humility and wisdom are connected in this particular discussion here. And humility, of course, is submitting to, as we see, the fear of the Lord. Let's look at that a little bit more. Humility towards God is trusting in his wisdom above your own. That is going to lead to, obviously, a richer life, better results. Uh, Probably, in many cases, could be physical blessings, but not always. But certainly spiritual blessings like joy and peace and healing. And I gave you some other verses because both Philippians talks about that and the Psalms talk about that. Of the blessing that comes from humility. Again, we live in a world right now where it's just completely inverted, saying, boy, if you want to get blessings, you need to just put yourself first. Looking out for number one. These are best-selling books out there right now that have been in the world. But pride oftentimes sets you up for a failure. And it is interesting that how many times you have people, um, they only maybe know a few verses from the Bible. God help, helps those who help themselves. Uh, cleanliness is better than <laughs> godliness. You know, all these things they make up. But one of them they tend to know is pride goes before a fall. And uh, they know that phrase, but oftentimes they don't even know it came from Proverbs 16, verse 18. And here it says, be assured that the proud will not go unpunished. Okay, that's the first time when you go, wait a minute. You know, Proverbs gives us general principles, but now it's giving this assurance. What is that about? The Hebrew actually, again, I don't want to turn this into Hebrew 101, but the actual word assured is hand in hand. In other words, like a handshake. You know, just a few minutes ago, we had a gathering. Some of you gave handshakes. A lot of you gave hugs. I didn't see anybody giving a holy kiss, so I'm still looking for that first one. But, but anyway, that is the case. And again, this is kind of like this idea. And so you say, well, if God is saying that the proud will not go unpunished, 
In other words, a promise that they will be punished. Well, I see some proud people that have successfully gone all the way through their life with pride and arrogance. Although it is interesting how many of those you've seen in the last part of their life, they end penniless, friendless, whatever. But I think there are two answers to that. And one of the commentators talked about this. That is, the punishment may not come till what? The day of judgment. You know, you might say, well, some people got off scot-free. There was no punishment for their evil deeds. There's no punishment for their arrogance. There's no punishment for their sin. Well, we haven't seen the last story yet. So there's part of that. I think the other idea is to also understand that maybe we need a right definition of blessed, which I thought was kind of interesting. Because if you think about it, blessing in God's kingdom isn't always physical riches. So it could be, obviously, that there would be benefits in that regard. Yes, thank you for passing the (laughs) clipboards. I so appreciate that. And Parker's going to be even more happy that the clipboards are starting to make their way down here. But also, there are not only maybe sometimes physical benefits, there are certainly spiritual riches. And I gave you Ephesians 1 and 3, which gives us Paul's list of some of those benefits as well. And, of course, it's maybe, as I've said, a healthy exercise sometimes to read the Proverbs with the Beatitudes. So... We've been encouraging you to kind of read through the Proverbs, but every once in a while, read through the Proverbs and then read the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. You'll see some very, very significant parallels between the two because the Beatitudes, in a sense, talk about the blessings in this upside down kingdom. Remember, we talked about the upside down kingdom in the book of Matthew that in some respects you can see if you have spiritual eyes, but the world can't see what is taking place there. I thought I'd make one other point because I did see some material about servant leadership. The term servant leadership we use all the time. Matter of fact, if you go to Dallas uh, Baptist University, I believe they actually have courses and even a curriculum on servant leadership. But the term is a relatively new one in that it was first coined by a man by the name of Robert Greenleaf back in 1970. And the idea of servant leadership is that your highest priority is to serve other individuals. And I think that that was a great idea because in some respects, servant leadership is taking some of these principles of the Proverbs and really trying to apply them. Because servant leaderships, uh, leaders aren't always focused just on accumulating power and wealth and status for themselves. They focus on the growth and well-being of the people and communities that they belong to. And that ends up benefiting the whole community because they're stronger from the bottom up. And the focus is not just on themselves, but on how they can serve and develop others. This week, I had an individual that if you lived in Peoria, Illinois, you would know. Uh, He is uh, head of a very significant company. But he, like uh, the leaders in Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby and Interstate Battery, he's a Christian. And he's really tried to take his Christian principles and apply them to all the people in his company. So, for example, he uh, routinely sends any of the people that are couples to go to a weekend to, uh, to remember, which is part of family life today. And he applies all sorts of principles. 
schools. And if you've seen some of these companies where they, there are Christians at the head, sometimes they have chaplains and they have all sorts of other ideas. But it really is just kind of a servant leadership kind of mindset. And I was just thrilled to have him in studio. He was willing to fly all the way down here from Peoria, Illinois, uh, to actually spend some time talking about his book and his emphasis of trying to apply Christian principles in that workforce. And I thought it was just a great illustration of, again, taking these principles in God's word and saying, what does that look like on a day-to-day basis in a major corporation? And so, again, humility is focusing on what we can give rather than what we can get. It's not just physically, but also spiritually and emotionally, even relationally, the idea of humility. So whether it's in our work or in our church or our home or our friendships, it's asking this very good question. How can I serve others today? That's what humility is all about. So if you're looking for some application, that is the case. Well, in the interest of time, let me pick out just two more verses, uh, sections of verses at least, and talk about how it is better to be praised by someone else. And in chapter 25, verses 6 and 7, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of the noble. That's our thinking back to that whole idea of those who would sit in a seat of honor than be asked to step down. Uh, verse 27, it is not good. Do I, do I have that one right? Yeah, I guess I do. Um, I, yeah, it's not good to eat much honey. It is glorious to seek one's own glory. By the way, I heard somebody tell me that it is possible to eat too much honey and get sick from it. So I just wanted to point that out here. And one more. uh, Chapter 27, verse 2. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. And so, again, some very, very biblical principles here. And that is, it's better to have someone praise you than to praise yourself. And it's very simple and kind of practical. If indeed you're going to have somebody praise you, it's better than bragging for yourself. Paul went even further to say it's not self Praise that makes you approve, but rather the one that the Lord commends. And so we can see that idea as well. And Proverbs uses the example, which I thought was interesting, of waiting to be invited to a place of honor versus putting yourself in the king's presence. And of course, Jesus uses that example, doesn't he, of an individual that sits in a place of honor and then is asked to go and sit at the end of the table. And so we see Jesus probably alluding back to what Solomon had written. And Jesus even then at the end of that says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be what? Exalted. Something to think about. And James uses that passage as well. He concludes that again in this wisdom passage that when we humble ourselves in God's eyes, he will exalt us. So again, uh, some obvious principles having to do with this issue of humility, but I wanted to once again pass those on. And each week we'll look at a different couplet of comparison, as we did two weeks ago, and even last week between honesty and lying, this week between humility and pride. But in the time that we have left, I thought I would try to answer this question that was asked about whether or not there's a food shortage. Now, I want to think about this in two ways. First of all, you might be thinking about, well, what does that mean? Should I race out to Costco today and pick up some more stuff? Especially when we might run out of toilet paper again. You know, I want to think beyond this, and that is, 
we are going to be facing, I think for some very good reasons, some food shortages worldwide. For us, it might be inconvenient in the case of maybe a formula, maybe a little bit even concerning. But for people in other parts of the world, this could be life threatening. And I think this is a great opportunity for the Baptist men, for Samaritan's Purse, maybe even for our own government, for us to do something to help what is going to be some really significant challenges. And some of you might say, why are you even talking about that? The reason I am is because this is what some people are starting to say is a global crisis that we're really not hearing about. I think in the last couple of days you've heard a little bit more about it, but it's been something I've been writing about. As a matter of fact, I have a commentary coming out this week on it. I've done other commentaries on it as well. And I think a lot of it has to do with an event that illustrates again the interconnectedness of our world. You know, we live in a world of globalization, and a lot of this is due simply to the war in Ukraine. Now, we've had supply chain problems due to the pandemic and the lockdown, but there's pretty good evidence now that what has transpired in Ukraine is going to now filter out into other parts of the world. So I'm going to try to help you understand what's happened in other parts of the world. Then we'll come back to our country in just a minute. But when you first look at this issue, you realize we have a significant shortage that is going to unfold very quickly on something as simple as wheat. If you've never looked at this before, about a quarter of all the wheat that has ever been produced in the world comes from Ukraine or Russia. And so there are the numbers there. The greatest amount of wheat comes from the so-called bread basket of Europe, and that's Ukraine. How much wheat's being planted right now? How much is being harvested? How much is making its way out of these ports in Ukraine? Very, very little. Now, it seems to me that when we see this coming, maybe as Christians, we can be like Joseph and say, you know, we are maybe seeing that in the future there may be some times of famine. So maybe we can use our times of plenty to help minister to those individuals. If you look at this and say, well, I'm in the United States, so we probably have enough wheat, although it turns out that less wheat is being planted right now because of the energy crisis, they have extended the ethanol opportunities to be in the uh, various gasoline. So that means a lot of uh, agricultural areas, a lot of farmers aren't planting wheat, they're planting corn because they can make more money turning it into ethanol. But you can begin to see, wait a minute, the corn is food for people. And we also have some things like that. But for us, not a big issue. Will we have enough bread? Probably. What about, let's take a, one country I saw just the other day, Lebanon. 90% of the wheat they get comes from Ukraine. What does that look like? What about some of the countries in Africa where almost 100% of the wheat they get comes from Ukraine? And so we, I think, need to be praying about those situations. Again, about 25% of all the wheat exports come from Ukraine and Russia. Up 20% of the corn as well in the world comes from there. Almost all of the sunflower oil comes from the sunflowers raised in that area. And then to make matters worse, you need fertilizer and potash, which is primarily in Russia, but some in Ukraine, it's not being sent out as well. So there are some really significant issues there. Now, there is wheat in the fields, but what's happening? Well, the Russian shoulders are going in there. Sometimes they don't have enough food, and they're collecting all the wheat from the areas. Even if there was wheat left, 
it's hardly making its way out of the country because if you've been paying attention to the ports, Odessa and Maripool, and the amount of devastation in Maripool is just beyond even imagination. The number of mass graves that we're getting pictures of from satellites just, again, just are overwhelming. But I won't go into that. But those ports are essentially closed. And even if you could get ships in there to the other ports, you have these anti-ship mines in the Black Sea, which is making it almost impossible to get any wheat out of there. So you can begin to see the problems that are starting to unfold. And here is a good example in which uh, it's just very difficult to export even what came from the last harvest of Ukraine. When you then begin to say, okay, well, what would that do to Europe? Well, without going into a lot of detail, let me just take the most significant country in Europe. That would be Germany. If you're not familiar, 25% of the GDP of all of Europe comes from Germany. So it is kind of the economic powerhouse. So I'm going to look at Germany just to illustrate the point. Well, Germany is facing some problems because it is highly dependent upon um, fossil fuel from Russia. As best the numbers I could, and these come from um, various organizations right now, um, about a third of all the gas they get is from Russia, about a third of all the oil they get from Russia, and more than half of all the coal. So just think of the most dominant country in Europe. What are they facing in the future? Well, again, if the EU bans Russian energy, and there's some debate about that, so, but if that's the case, for the people, it's going to be a lot colder winters, a lot warmer summers. But it's going to be a lot more than that because it's going to affect the industries because they've been dependent on cheap oil. Now they won't have that. It's going to make them less competitive in the global market. It's going to be much more difficult for them uh, to even pay for all of that. And they are part of an EU, a European Union, that is being dragged down by many of the countries which them are already very poor. The way to identify those, I hate the acronym, but it's true, PIGS. P stands for Portugal. I stands for Italy. G stands for Greece. S stands for Spain. Each one of those countries are surviving because the central bank in Europe has been printing money. And you get the sense that after a while, Germany is going to say, we're not going to print any more money. Uh, you're on your own. Well, if they're on their own, they're going to leave the European Union, probably go back to their own currency, deal with their issues. That's why you're starting to see more and more people saying the net impact of the war in Ukraine is that the European Union will no longer exist by the end of this decade. Some people say it won't exist for even five years from now. Look at all that. You know, you start thinking about the impact of that uh, in terms of even what it could mean in prophecy. I don't know if any of you know the pastor, Jack Hibbs. He's going to be on the program, I think, in June. And he's been writing about this idea of the Great Reset and the uh, World Economic Forum and the dislocation that's happening there. I mean, really, if you're looking for an Antichrist to take over, this is the kind of world that Europe is facing right now. Again, this is the idea of banning Russian oil right now. Hungary is challenging that. And if that's not bad enough, you think we've got inflation? Well, Germany's got inflation that's at a 40-year high. And so you say, well, that affects energy. I say, well, what's the relationship between energy and food? Well, if you don't have energy, right now it looks like we may be having a shortage of diesel, especially in the East Coast. What does that mean? Most of you don't drive cars and have diesel. But the food that comes to your grocery store comes on trucks that use diesel. The 
various farm equipment um, that uses diesel. I mean, you just start thinking we are facing problems, but some of these countries are facing massive problems and shortages. And how that plays out is going to be really concerning. So you might say, well, then it's about time to get other countries to step up. I think the United States has and should step up. But look at uh, one of the things they were talking about is maybe India could increase their wheat production. But that faded because they have these intent heat waves. And now they're not only not producing enough wheat for their people, they're actually putting restrictions on wheat exports from India. Other countries are looking at as well, and they're not exporting. And then, of course, you have the fertilizer shortages and things of that nature. The other day I saw somebody talking about, well, maybe it's time to use compost and manure, which tells you how bad things have become. And, of course, the human cost is really of concern. Imagine what could happen right now in Asia and Africa, some of these poorer countries, but also the political unrest. Remember, the Arab Spring came in large part because of rising grain prices and food shortages and all the rest. So I think we have to recognize that this is becoming an issue. I just use that example. What happens in Germany certainly filters down to every other country in Europe. So if nothing else, I think we should just be grateful that we live in a country where it might be a little bit frustrating to not be able to get all the food and resources we might want. But compared to what some of these other countries might face, and again, how much of that is tied to Ukraine? Quite a bit. How much of it was it tied to the pandemic and lockdown? Quite a bit. And that's the world that we find ourselves in today. You can see the price of food going up globally. Those are some numbers that have been coming up. You look at the, the cost of fertilizer. You can see what's happening there because you can't get the fertilizer out of Russia and Ukraine and other places for potash. You look at uh, the cost of wheat and corn. And again, we have the financial ability maybe in this country to uh, deal with that. We may not be happy about what it, we pay when we go to the grocery store, but imagine if you were in a poor country where you're living on a dollar a day, what that means in terms of your ability to have access to some of that. But what about the United States? I'd be remiss if I didn't mention we do seem to have a shortage right now. Have you heard about that at all? You know, and that, of course, is the issue of uh, formula, which we seem to be missing. And if you uh, don't know, uh, some of that was actually in existence back in February. But then then that particular month, Abbott Laboratories had to institute a recall of powered formulas, Similac and things like that, because of the possibility of contamination in their Michigan facility. Well, that began to strain the uh, supply chain because as you look out, uh, the best I can determine here is they produce almost, I think I put that down there, about 57% of the Similac that is made available through the special supplement nutrition program for women, infants, and children called WIC. Now, it turns out that, um, and by the way, that's the low number. I've seen some say everywhere from 57% to 68%. Leave it to the federal government to not even be able to know how much uh, is actually produced. I, I bet if you ask Amazon right now, how much uh, do you sell in the state of New Hampshire or Illinois? They could tell you within a percentage, um, maybe even a fraction percentage, but the government can't tell you that. And, of course, there's another problem, and that is, I didn't know this until I researched the other day, infant formula is one of the items most frequently stolen from retail stores. 
So as a result, that's why sometimes you see the simulac and things like that in lock cabinet. But the bottom line is, very simply, that because this is so much controlled by the government, then it actually should have been the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, or also the Department of Agriculture, to have had some of the other suppliers to jump in, like Nestle and others, to produce them. But because it's a government monopoly, you didn't have any market forces like you'd have in a free market. So you end up with the shortage that we have. And so if you're looking for a baby infant formula, there actually is one place where you can locate that, and that's on our southern border right now. This comes from one of the members of Congress in Florida showing pictures of the fact that they have pallets upon pallets upon pallets of baby formula. This one's from Hildago, uh, Texas, which are down there. Uh, and again, just illustrating the fact that when the government tries to control all that, it's like in the Soviet Union, remember where you in some places, the Soviet Union have an abundance of cheese, but no eggs. And you go somewhere else in the Soviet Union, have an abundance of eggs and no cheese. I mean, we're right now, if you're looking for Similac or any of the other baby formula, just head to the southern border because that's where it is right now, actually not into the homes. How do we respond? Well, first of all, I think we should be like Joseph and say, you know, this may be an opportunity that God gives us uh, to pray for our leaders. And if nothing else, I just say, you know, give thanks that you live in the United States of America. Can you imagine if you were in another country right now hearing these stories? What would actually be taking place? I think we should call for our leaders to distribute food that we can provide for them. I think this is a great opportunity for us to maybe get behind organizations like World Vision and uh, Samaritan's Purse and World Impact and a variety of others. Um, I think we should reevaluate whether we're going to use our ethanol subsidies right now. I think we should use corn for food, not corn to stick in your gas tank. Um, but also, I think we honestly probably have to plan for maybe higher energy prices, higher food prices. And if nothing else, you know, what did we learn in Proverbs? Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. I think we should still honor the Lord and certainly give. I might say, don't hoard. Besides, you probably can't hoard anyway. I don't know if you saw this the other day. Costco was putting a limit on the number of things that you can purchase because they're concerned about hoarding taking place. And it illustrates again that uh, we, though, can have a great opportunity if we do have resources in our home. We can be good neighbors to individuals. Because even here, you may have people in your own neighborhood, within your own zip code, that maybe lack some kind of food item or some need. And this is a great way for us to be good neighbors to those around us. Because after all, Proverbs 19, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. He will reward them for what they have done. So last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the Proverbs. I think they give us a great illustration of how we, in the midst of what could be a food shortage, which might be an irritant in this country, but could be life-threatening in other countries, how we can be good neighbors for those around us. Parker?